You're listening to Aesthetically Speaking. On this podcast, we're talking about all things branding, logos, colors, fonts, and the strategy behind it all. It seems like these days it's easier than ever to build an audience, but harder than ever to stand out online. My name's Rebecca, and I'm a brand strategist and designer. I'm here with my sister, Abby, a lawyer who needs a creative outlet. Together, we're going to talk about how to bring your brand to life. Welcome to Aesthetically Speaking. We are so excited this week. We're talking about H, which is for how branding works. And I'm going to be breaking it down. This is like the explanation that I've always wanted to give that nobody has ever asked for. And so I'm just going for it. It's going to be deep. I think it's going to be really interesting and I hope helpful in understanding how branding can really work for your business. So I want to start by sharing this quote that I love from Rory Sutherland, and he is the vice chairman of Ogilvy, which is one of the top advertising agencies in the world. I think he's like a creative genius. He just has a really interesting view on what marketing is and what business is. So this is a quote. He says, we don't value things. We value their meaning. What they are is determined by the law of physics, but what they mean is determined by the laws of psychology. And that is such a good explanation of what branding is. Branding is about creating meaning, defining value, creating value. A lot of times we talk about branding in terms of increasing the perceived value, right? If something looks expensive, you expect it to be expensive. And what Rory Sutherland says and what I have found is that increasing the perceived value of a good or a service actually increases the real value. Right. And that's really why I think brand is so powerful. That makes sense, right? Because consumer perception is reality. If people are willing to pay more for it, it is technically a higher value product. That's how it works. Right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us step-by-step through how branding works. And to understand how branding works, we first have to understand how our eyesight works and how we physically, literally see things. Okay. So if you're, tur- if you're tuning in for the first time and you're like, oh, how branding works, I've heard Rebecca talk about this on like five different episodes. I think I can <laughs> skip this one. I actually think you will be surprised. There are things you didn't know that I, are all going in the mix. Yes. I have never talked about this stuff before. When we get to the end, I'll talk about really the design part of branding. But before we even talk about that, we really have to understand how our brain and our eyes work together. And I am not a scientist. I'm not a sciencey person. So I've tried to break this down as simply as I can to understand it myself. And hopefully that will make sense for you guys. Right. So basically, your eyes see light. When light hits your retina, which is the part at the back of your eye, that's actually part of your brain. And it's the only part of your brain that is visible to light. And so the cells in your retinas turn into electrical signals and those signals travel through your retina, through the optic nerve to your brain. And then that turns those signals into the images that you see. And it really does kind of work like a camera. So you've probably seen this or experimented with this in elementary school, but your brain actually perceives the image upside down and then flips it. Right. And that's part of how it works. I still don't understand, like, why was that necessary? Whoever designed the brain, can could you just flip that part? I don't know. And when I read about how our eyes work, the fact that we perceive light and like there was a study I read that 
I think I included it in here, that we're so sensitive to light that we can detect a single photon in a dark room. That's literally one particle of light. We can detect it. It's basically magic how our eyes work. Well, and every because everything is light, Mm -hmm. color, shape, right, texture, everything that makes our world visually interesting, yes, is actually just light and it's our brain interpreting light. Yes. And it's all happening so quickly. So you see something, your eye sends it to your retina, which sends it to the optic nerve, which sends it to the brain. And there was an experiment that basically showed our brain can process and correctly identify images that were seen for as little as 13 milliseconds. That's what makes us different from the robots. I Seriously. Robots so, can't identify bridges or bikes or traffic lights, <laughs> but we can, and we can do it so fast. <laughs> it's true. Okay. So let me just show you how quick a millisecond is or 13 milliseconds, because that's how long it takes. And then I have a little test that I'm going to make you do. Okay, Rebecca did not prepare me for this, <laughs> but I'm going to love I'm it. Willing. Okay, this is 13 milliseconds. I'm just going to count down so you can see how fast it is. Three, two, one. Oh, that was 51 milliseconds. I couldn't even stop it fast enough. Okay. Let me try it again. This will be the last time I won't make you guys listen to me. Starting. This is actually just showing Rebecca's reflexes. How good are they? Not very good. Okay. Did you play Call of Duty with her? No. <laughs> Three, two, one. Okay, that was 20 milliseconds. Uh, yeah, still pretty fast. That felt like two seconds. Like- yeah, it's yeah, it's very, very fast. So what I'm going to do is I have a series of images. I'm going to show them to you for 13 milliseconds, and I want you to see if you can identify just what they are. Okay? Gosh, okay. <laughs> if one of these is the red-green colorblind test... It's I'm- not the colorblind test. Good. I'm borderline on some of the images. It's like you might be a little bit colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. Are Visual you recognition ready? Test. I'm ready. Okay. So I'm going to flash the image and then I'm going to flash it off. So you're going to see it for 13 milliseconds and then you're going to not see it. I want you to tell me what it is. Okay. Ready? Okay. Okay. I'm going to concentrate. Yeah. So I'm going to set the timer. Set. Go. That was a vanilla ice cream cone. Boom. In a waffle cone. Not a sugar cone. Yes. That was good. Okay. Ready? Set. Go. That was a blue umbrella with a silver handle. Oh my gosh. Okay. Ready, set, go. That was, I believe, a golden retriever. Uh, it was a dog. It was a dog. Yeah. Blonde I don't know dog. Right. <laughs> Blonde dog. Okay. Uh, I think we have two more. Ready, set, go. Oh. Oh, back to back. Oh, sorry. This one I've seen for a long time. This is a guitar. Guitar. Okay. And what was the next one? Because I skipped over it too fast. The next one was like a blue pair of running shoes. Okay, pretty dang good. Pretty good. You really do flash them up for a second and you can see them. And you can see them. That is impressive. And just imagine you can see in design, the more complicated the image is, the longer it's going to take you. Whereas like these were all simple images, right? Like simple image on a white background. Right. That to help people get things faster. Yeah. Yeah. What I was surprised by, what surprised me about myself in this challenge, yes, is I thought it would be like I could see a flash of an image and I could tell you generally what it was, but it was actually mm-hmm. surprising to me how much detail I perceived mm-hmm. or I could yeah. recall based on yeah. having seen it for 13 milliseconds. Yeah. So that's interesting too. Yeah. Really cool. 
Okay. So let's continue. That's the, that's the main part of the science lesson. You guys, if you're still with me, let's connect the dots between what our eyes see and what that means to our brain. Okay. Right. So So light turns into electromagnetic impulse. Right. But your brain has to interpret what that means. Right. Right. So when your brain sees an ice cream cone, it begins work to assess the image, determine its meaning and decide what to do with it. Okay. Yeah. So in that instant, your brain starts reviewing memories and ideas and pictures and all your life experiences to understand this image that's in front of them and decided to do about it. So like it goes back to caveman days, right? You're determining, is this object a threat? Is it important to me? Do I need this to survive? What do I do with this information? And have I seen this before? And your brain is so wired to create patterns and organize information. And we're also wired to remember everything that we have decided is important. Okay. So the example that I use all the time is the sound of your name, right? You have trained your brain over years and years and years to listen for your name. So somebody could be saying lots of different things. And as soon as they say, Abby, you almost perceive that sound as being louder because you told your brain, hey, this sound is important. You can recognize it. Okay. So like the same thing is true for our eyes. In the visual recognition test, yes. when I saw the ice cream cone, my brain immediately thought about salt and straw in Palo Alto, which is a very important place to me. Yes. And I actually, I can smell it in my, mm-hmm. in my mind right now. I can smell it. And I know that not only is it not a threat, but it's important to me. Yes. I need this for my survival. I need this for survival. <laughs> well, and it's so interesting. So this is kind of a side tangent, but I was reading about our peripheral vision mm-hmm. and our peripheral vision is actually better at sensing light than like the main cones of our eyes. Interesting. Why is why is that from okay. an evolutionary standpoint? I did not read the research on this, but this is my view that from an evolutionary standpoint, we can perceive threats better if we can see them from farther away. So not just what's directly in front of us, but what could be coming at us from the side or slightly behind. Interesting. And I think it's interesting because something happens where you've probably experienced this because your peripheral vision is better at perceiving light. Sometimes you can see a star in the night sky out of the corner of your eye, but if you look at it, it disappears. Ooh, that's wild. Right? So it's like this funky thing that happens where, and you can see like, okay, this also plays into our perception of things because Mm -hmm. you can be aware of something in the peripheral and that can trigger a certain feeling or a certain idea like I need to get away from this or I need to go towards this without you being cognitively aware that you're seeing it. Interesting. It's just, it's so, it's so super fascinating to me. And I used to do some eye tracking back in my advertising days at BYU. And one thing that's really interesting. So eye tracking, if you're not familiar, is where you have a user get on a website and there's a little camera on the screen and you track where their eyes go. Mm -hmm. And so that can help you understand what people are looking at, what stands out to them and what they skip over. But what's interesting is that just because people see something doesn't mean they understand it and it doesn't mean they remember it. Okay. So you have to think just because their eye went there doesn't mean that it meant anything to them, but it does mean that they looked at it. And so there's all these different layers, right? Like how do we see things? How do we pay attention to things? How do we discern meaning of those things, right? Okay. So 
Any questions up to this point? I would say this might be a tangent, but I'm just curious how with all of this psychology and evolutionary biology that comes into play with how you see things and why you see things the way you do. Mm -hmm. I remember talking about in in like a college psychology class, the subliminal messaging experiments. Mm -hmm. Is that the one where they like flash something, like a quick cut of it on a movie or something? The idea was, the anecdote is you go to a movie and they show you a millisecond of a shot of Coke or a millisecond of popcorn. Mm -hmm. And then they track how much the sales went up. Yeah. And anyways, so people were convinced that this was some sort of like Soviet scheme and that the propagandists Mm. were going to come get us and everything. Right. Because they were like, oh, just just seeing one shot of Coke made 50% more people buy Coke. Right. Anyways, it it turns out that experiment was fabricated or like never really happened. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought that was like urban legend. It's an urban legend, right? It has been proven that that's like not actually how it works. Just showing someone a tiny fraction of a millisecond that's imperceptible to someone is not going right. to make them buy more soda or popcorn. Right. Well, and if that were true, the same point, like just because you recognize that as soda, if you even did, doesn't right. mean that you understand that it's soda or that you want soda, you know, like there's all those layers to it. Right. And if that were true, those like basically food porn previews mm-hmm. that they show you where it's like a person surfing a wave of Coca-Cola and then the like right. the buttery popcorn is tumbling down at like an avalanche. Everybody would be susceptible to that and we'd, right. we'd all buy the popcorn. Right. But that being said, do you know that ad where the ice fills the whole screen and then it fills up with soda? I don't think I've seen this one. It's been a while it's since only- I've been to a movie theater. Okay. Well, don't worry because we're going to go see Barbie together. It is very persuasive to me. <laughs> I see that ad and I'm like, yes, I feel parched. Drink <laughs> something right away. Rebecca's like, I need it for my survival. But I do think we have this idea that like, oh, subliminal messaging is so powerful. And I think subliminal messaging is more subtle and less weird than that. Yes. Me showing you an ice cream cone didn't make you want to get ice cream but you I mean it did it did maybe (laughs) but not as much as if you were scrolling Instagram and saw a friend of yours at salt and straw in Palo Alto where you have previous experiences and connotations of what that ice cream tastes like like that would influence you right right so it's like you have to know how to use all of those things I think to do it effectively just to take us one step further down the rabbit hole I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast a little while ago. And oh, he has an episode. Good? Here's here's my take. Rebecca, you asked for it, so I'm gonna record <laughs> it on the podcast. Here's the thing. I can go to my husband and I can say something factually true. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, there are more lawns than there are miles of highway in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think that's a real fact. Anyways, that's not something that I would know offhand, but I can go to him and I can just say something that is a true fact. Uh-huh. And Ty will be like, mm, are you sure? <laughs> well, have you thought about this? What about this? Anyways, and we'll talk about it for hours and hours. But if Malcolm Gladwell mm-hmm. comes on the podcast and says, hey, if you do something a lot, you'll be better at it. Everyone is like, Malcolm, you changed the game again. You did it. But you speak the truth. <laughs> So I have like a little personal offense with him. You're like, Um, no, duh. If I don't sleep, I get tired. Right. There are some (laughs) things that are like so obvious that maybe we don't need to spend a lot of time studying them. 
Yeah. Anyways, but some of it is good. There are a couple of times where I feel like he's a little surface level. Yeah. Not to criticize. This is like the most the most famous pseudoscientist in the world. So yeah. anyways, but he, in the podcast, they were talking about advertising. Mm-hmm. And their thesis was basically like, most big companies are massively overspending on advertising. Mm. There, there's really no way to prove that it's effective or to prove that there's a causal connection between that and that there's a return on your investment. And the cost of advertising is so high for these big events. And how are you ever going to recoup that? Oh, yeah. Anyways, and I just thought that was interesting because to me, I was a little bit dubious. How how could so many people be spending a ton of money on something that's not effective at all? Mm -hmm. And then... In our culture, there's just this dichotomy, right? We believe that if you see one split second of Coca-Cola, you will be unable to resist. Yes. But also that if you're constantly inundated with ads, that it's just like you'll get immune to it and it's not Mm -hmm. effective. So I'd be curious where on that spectrum do you fall? And, you know, when we're talking about this from a scientific standpoint, yeah, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's so interesting because I think both things can be true. I really hate that there are so many ads, right? We've talked about this because science shows that the more you see something, the more that you want it, the more familiar you are, the more you like something. And I think the science, quote unquote, says, like in marketing, you have to see something between seven and 17 times before you decide to purchase it. Interesting. And so I know that, but that also doesn't mean that I think it's a little determinist of us to say, oh, if we show our audience this ad 17 times, they will buy it, right? right. People have the ability to choose. Yeah. So it's this fine line where we can obviously influence people and there are ethical ways of advertising and unethical ways of advertising. But I don't like this notion that we take away all choice Right. we advertise so much. So I, that's kind of a cop-out answer. I do think that a lot of advertising is a waste of money. I think it's changed a little bit with digital advertising because you can track things a lot more. And you can so, Yeah. So you can run Facebook ads or skippable ads on YouTube. You only pay for anyone who watches more than 15 seconds. Interesting. Right? So let's say that they show your ad to 2 million people, but only 200,000 watch more than 15 seconds. You only pay for the 200,000. So that seems like a better method, right? If you're just paying for like a billboard on the highway, I think that does contribute to some like overall brand recognition and visibility, but how do you possibly track how many sales that turns into, right? And that's why this is going down a whole rabbit hole, but brand valuations are so interesting because how do you possibly put a dollar value on the brand that Nike has built. Yeah. Right? They have their product, they have their stocks, they have these things, but there's also this intangible social capital that they have because people know Nike, recognize it, believe in it, understand it as more than just a shoe, but as a movement for excellence and athleticism and all these things. Anyway, right. and and there are actually companies who do that, right? They look at your business and they say, okay, your your operations are worth this much. Your brand is worth this much, you know? Yeah. But it's it's just tricky. Like it's kind of an intangible right. thing. Interesting. 
And that, so I feel that, sorry for the for the person that has to do those valuations that's there with the Excel spreadsheet being like, oh my gosh, well, based on these three intangible factors, I value you at uh, $50 million. Right. And I think for most businesses, it's largely based on how profitable is your business, you know? Yeah. But there is that X factor that is your brand. Right. And I think we live in this world where there's so many people out there who promote things along the lines of like getting something for nothing, right? Like create a crappy product, sell it on Amazon and make a million dollars. Yeah. And maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. But if you have a product that is actually meaningful, I think it's actually hard for you to just stick it on Amazon and sell it. I think you have to create a brand to get that movement behind it. Right. And that has to be done by understanding psychology and perception, which is what we're talking about. Right. Okay. So getting back on track, we talked about how our brain is wired to create patterns and to organize information. One thing that... um. I've learned. So, okay, there's a book that I love called A Hundred Things. Rebecca is holding up a book called A Hundred Things. A Hundred Things Every Designer Should Know About People. Ooh. And there's so much interesting psychology about how people read, how people understand things, how we remember things. Do you know that there is an entire part of our brain dedicated to recognizing faces? I did know about that from the book, right? Um, like the we man are... who mistook his wife for a hat. Oh yes, 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 yes. We are wired to recognize faces and to and to trust faces. Yep. It's anyway. It's just fascinating. So that's how you knew that the villain in Stranger Things was the bad guy because he didn't have a face. Yes, exactly. So how does all of that, the way that we process information and remember things, how does that relate to branding? Let's dive into it. Rebecca's going to tell us. If we continue with this process, right, your eyes take in light, your cells turn that into electric signals, your brain processes them, and then gives you certain thoughts and feelings and perceptions, okay? So Mm -hmm. one example that I wanted to share is from Herman Rorschach. Is that how you say that? Like the Rorschach test? Yes, like the inkblot tests. Yes. Okay. So he was an artist, like an amateur artist. And he became fascinated with how visual perception changes from person to person. So he actually went to medical school and then he developed this ink blot test that you've probably Dang. seen or heard of. They yeah. look like spidery ink blots. It and looks like he, he dropped ink on a page and then folded it. And then folded it. Yeah. They're symmetrical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they are folded. And he would use those to understand how people's mind works. So he would ask his subjects the question, what might this be? So he wanted to find out not just what they saw, but what did it mean to them? What parts of the picture did they focus on? What did they ignore? And the responses told him so much about that person's cognition, right? But also about their personality, their motivation, their perceptions based on what they were seeing in the picture. So one person Uh might perceive something as being a newborn baby and another person might perceive it as a grizzly bear. Okay. So we could maybe assume some things about their personality based on how they see the same image. Well, you didn't know this, Rebecca, but I made a little test for you. Oh, dear. (laughs) We're going to do a Rorschach test right now. (laughs) Okay. So I have seen this image and I have decided what it looks like to me. Okay. Wait, so the, did you create in- this image 
No, I got it from the internet. Okay, because I was like, that's cheating if you're drawing something intentional. No, no, no. It's just going to be a random ink blot. I actually think they're really beautiful. I would love to do some framed ink blot paintings in our house. I think they're really cool. Yeah, I think they are fun. Okay. I don't know that I can make it any bigger. And I can't share my screen because it's on my phone. That's okay. Just hold it up to the to the camera. So I will hold it up. We're going to hear from Rebecca first what she thinks this is. And then I will tell you what I saw. And I wrote down like five things. So you don't have okay. to go on forever. I already, when I saw, I was like, oh, it's a family holding hands. And they're playing Ring Around the Rosie. <laughs> oh <my gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Rebecca sees a family. What, what else do you might see? Um, I could maybe see like a bird, like two birds with their wings outstretched flying. Okay. What do you see? I'm so curious. Oh my gosh. This is, this is more <laughs> revealing than I intended it to be. The first <laughs> thing I see is the face of the devil. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. I can see, I was thinking of them as like separate shapes. If they're all combined, I could see it as, I would say maybe a dog. <laughs> Yeah, so it looks it looks kind of the devil. (laughs) We'll have to put this in the show notes. But it looks kind of like a jack-o'-lantern carved face. It does, yeah. But like the eyes are turned down, it looks kind of sinister. And then I thought these things on the corner might be like bats. But like Christopher Nolan Batman bat. And then I also (laughs) saw like the hazardous waste signs. So everything I saw was evil. Oh my gosh. As it turns out, we need to do these tests. (laughs) As it turns out, maybe this doesn't tell you a lot about how everyone perceives things, but it might tell you just how an individual person perceives things. Yes. Is this this inkblot a threat? Yes. (laughs) I think that's the point. Like two people can see the same image and have a drastically different interpretation of it. Yep. (laughs) That is hilarious. Not only, like, I thought for sure you were going to say, I was like, oh, I could see maybe like an animal or something. Little did I know you said the face of the devil. <laughs> when the first thing you said was a family holding hands, I was like, oh, no, this is not going to look good for me. <laughs> we should find a way to put this in the show notes. If you are listening to this episode, please tell us what you see. Yes. I'll post or, it on Instagram, too. Yeah, post it on Instagram. Oh maybe it'll gosh. make me feel better or worse about myself. That is hilarious. Okay, so this leads into my next point. I'm, I promise I'm getting to how we actually use branding. Okay, so some things feel a certain way because of our biology. So mm-hmm. over time through evolution, this is one of my favorite examples. Mankind learned that round shapes were generally safe and sharp or angled shapes were dangerous, right? Because if you picked up an angled shape, it could hurt you. Round shape, mm-hmm. I would say. So, or a skinny, a skinny, bony woman, gonna, <laughs> gonna hurt. Yes, fat woman, never gonna hurt you. Yes. So that trickles down, down, down to our consciousness, where circles or rounded shapes, even just a two D flat version of it in a logo, is perceived as more safe and friendly. Whereas a triangle can be perceived as, I wouldn't say it's dangerous, but it's perceived as less safe. Right. Okay. Okay. Another example light and dark. Our bodies naturally wake up when it's light and then they produce melatonin and sleep when it's dark, right? Mm -hmm. We are not nocturnal creatures. So light and light colors are generally perceived to be more high energy, energizing, vibrant, make you feel awake. Whereas darkness and dark colors 
feel a little bit more lower energy. They have more of a heavier grounded feeling, right? Right. So you can see how a designer who understands these principles can create a brand that has a certain feeling. Right. And why some things just feel off. Have you ever seen that where you're like, yeah, it looks like I can tell that it's well-designed, quote unquote, but it doesn't have the right feeling for the mm-hmm. product or service or whatever it is that it's selling. Right. But are all of those are all of those universal or is some of it subjective? I'm so glad you asked. So <laughs> there is <laughs> just the perfect segue. So there's like some things, like I said, that are biology or evolution based. There are other things that are more based on our experiences and expectations. So there's a classic story of a CEO who is explaining like the quarterly sales breakdown and Mm -hmm. he has it broken down in a map of the U.S. And the West part of the U.S. is in red and the Eastern part is in green. And he shows the map and everyone flips out and they're like, what's going on in the Western hemisphere or Western side? What's the problem? And he's like, there's no problem. They perform great. And in his mind, it was just red and green. But uh-huh. to a group of financial advisors, they're like, no, no, no. Red is bad. Yeah. Green is good. What's going on? So this is a classic example of perception because if you're an accountant and you see red on a spreadsheet, that means negative balance. It's a bad thing. But in Chinese culture, red is a symbol of good luck and fortune. And so different things translate differently. Red, white, and blue is patriotic for us. But for people outside of the U.S., it doesn't have the same connotations, right? Right. Same thing like white. We wear white at weddings. In Eastern cultures, they wear white at funerals. Yeah. So different perceptions. There was another question that you wanted to ask about this. Well, I just, in an application sense, yes, mm-hmm. it would make that when something is biological or or universal, right, our bodies are programmed to sleep when it's dark and awake when the sun shines. And so we respond to light and darkness in certain ways. That seems like something you could use. Mm -hmm. If you know culturally, oh, we're in a place where red means good fortune and wealth and celebration, Mm -hmm. you can use that. But on a more micro scale, it's like, can you predict how a certain person is going to interpret an image with any degree of accuracy? Maybe you could predict, but I don't think I wouldn't bet on it. Okay. I think this is really where branding becomes less about representing what is and it becomes more about creating a perception for what they want it to be so So, on an emotional level are you saying that you can create something emotionally even if it's not uh, with a hundred percent success you can suggest something that people will perceive even if literally they might not know that they're perceiving it exactly and also that our understanding and our perception of brands changes and grows over time. Okay. So McDonald's has red in their logo. I don't think people are afraid of McDonald's or have a negative, maybe they have a negative connotation depending on who you are. But by and large, we understand what McDonald's is. And that's because they've created their brand over time. And because brands have levels and layers and nuance and messaging along with them, they're not just using the color red. Right. It is interesting, though, if you go to informationisbeautiful.net, there are amazing visualizations of data. But one of my favorites is how color is perceived in different cultures. Mm. And there's almost, I think there's only a couple colors 
that have a positive connotation in almost every culture. One of those is gold. Gold is almost universally regarded as everybody loves gold. Everybody loves gold. It's regarded as valuable, sturdy, superior, but everything else kind of varies from place to place. So when you're building your brand, you start off by considering the cultural connotations of the people in your demographic. But oftentimes as businesses grow and they become global brands, they may adjust those colors or they may say, we're going to change the perception that people in a different country have of us through exposing them to our brand over time and giving them other positive associations. Yeah. Right. So it's that's where like you get into the decision making of this and how you choose to expand your brand. Because really, if you want to be globally recognized, you can't have a different color palette in every country. Right. You know, even I think a lot of times these brands that have a non-English word do Mm -hmm. really well because Nike is not English. And so it's Nike everywhere you go. I did think it was interesting when I when I lived in Italy, there Mm -hmm. were these like high top, big, chunky white Nike sneakers that every teenager was wearing. Uh Uh-huh. But. It, even in Italian, which has in fluctuation, you pronounce all of the vowels. Uh huh. They called it Nike. Interesting, because it was an American brand, so they assumed it was Nike. That's so funny. And Nike. I was like, even you would not say this as Nike. Yeah, it was really weird. Yeah, that's really funny. Yeah. So I think that was all I had to say about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds a little wishy washy, but that's okay. Yeah, it's a little wishy washy because it is wishy washy, right? Yeah. Like. Perception changes from person to person. And this is why I think in our color episode, we talked about this. Also, I feel like I'm saying color so weird. I apologize. Color, that someone's perception of color is so subjective. Yeah. And so there are assumptions that you make. I'm going to talk about this in a second, that in branding, we have to make a lot of assumptions. And there's good information that we can get. But at the end of the day, you are A, making hopefully a smart assumption and B, creating a perception by how you use the brand over time. Okay. So I think these things fall in the category of use them, but don't tie yourself to them so much that you're like, I can never use red or I have to use gold. It's just something to consider. And I think a good brand strategist can do that. The way you expressed it, I thought was really helpful to say it's how you are using it, Mm -hmm. that you're not just passively being like, okay, in the data, it says men between the ages of 35 and 55 love the color orange. And so I guess I just have to have a brand that looks exactly like Home Depot. Right. It's that you can create a perception by using it and being clever and combining the information with the artistry, which I think is good. Yes. And also that your brand is not just your logo. Your brand is everything that you do that creates that perception. So even if you had the friendliest logo in the entire world and it was all round and bubbly and had little smiley faces, if all of the customer service agents were jerks, over time, people would perceive your brand to be a mean brand. Yeah. It all has to work together. And I think this is why my clients, I think, really get successful brands because we focus on not just the visual part of it. That's kind of the last thing that we create after understanding what the overall perception is they want to create and what they're going to do beyond just the design part to create that Mm -hmm. perception. So 
But the point is that there's significant psychology to why we perceive things certain ways. It's not all just made up. Well, it's it sounds to me like it's not just about what you see. Mm-hmm. That it's it's kind of a cycle. Like what you see can influence how you perceive something, but also your experience with it will change how you see it. Yes, yes. We think of it as this cause and effect thing where it's one and then the other. But I see it as an infinity sign where they're influencing each other and they create new perceptions and new memories and new experiences. And that changes what you think about it the next time you see it. Yeah. It's just, it's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is the process that I use to take what I understand about psychology and perception to create brands that are both visually beautiful and also hopefully very emotionally evocative. Because really when when we create a brand, we want people to do something. We want them to feel strongly about our business. We want them to buy whatever we're selling and we want them to like us. So, yep. so you're saying is, aesthetically pleasing and emotionally pleasing. Yes. And I think kind of the third thing would be drives people to action. Yeah. Right? Okay. And and like we were saying, there is power in Nike having millions of people who are emotionally connected to their brand. There actually is some dollar value of that. It's hard to determine, but there is a dollar value. Right. But it's very important to Nike that people are emotionally connected and that they give them their money. Mm-hmm. And I think if your brand is not doing all three of those things, you're missing out on a huge opportunity to grow your business. And not to make this whole episode about Nike, but I do think it's interesting to see kind of like the junior brands advertisements Mm -hmm. are very primal. Mm -hmm. If you wear these shoes, you will get the girl or get the guy. Yes. And Nike now has transcended that, that that they don't even need to show you what it is they're selling. Right. They just need to have Venus and Serena. And I'm like, yep. mm -hmm, Yes. Well, and going back to what I was saying about creating meaning Nike isn't selling shoes. They're selling the opportunity to be the best athlete you can be. Yeah, that's true. And so they no longer have to really showcase their shoes because what they're selling is this really powerful idea. Right. But making that connection on your own can actually be really, really hard. And that's why I think it is helpful to work with an expert who can say, okay, what are you selling? Oh, you're selling shoes. What does that mean? What does it mean if somebody has great shoes when they work out? What does that yeah. mean if they can get stronger each time? What does that mean if they're more comfortable? You know, who can ask the questions and then say, oh, it's really about being the best you can be, outperforming your competition. Then let's sell that. Yeah. And that's really what I hope to get to with my brands is finding that intrinsic human desire that feels universal. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we have a universal need to be understood. We have a universal need to self actualize and reach our potential. And so, in some way, tapping into that in your brand, I think, is really what works. Okay. There's a quote that I wanted to share about branding. There's a million different definitions of what branding is, but this is one that I really like from Jay Bear. And he is a great author. He calls himself like a client experience expert. So, okay. he leans really heavy on. How do you create the perception of your brand over time through the things that you're doing in your business? So this is what he said, quote, branding is the art of aligning what you want people to think about your company 
with what people actually do think about your company. Mm. So this is where I get into it with my clients. So the first thing that we have to do is figure out how do you actually want to be perceived? Do you want to be a luxury business or do you want to be an affordable business? Or do you want to be an affordable business that people don't describe as affordable? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like there's some new, there's some nuance in there. And everybody has a certain thing, right? I actually do not want to be a luxury business. That's not my goal. My goal is to be a high value business. Okay. And I want that to come with a high price tag. I want that to be because the value is so great, not because it's this otherworldly luxury experience. Interesting. Okay. Right. So the way that I do this. How I figure out what my client wants is I try to get information from them in three different ways. So the first is a questionnaire, which is written answers. Okay. So I can see what words they're using to describe things. Then we have our strategy session where they're describing things to me verbally, right? I'm asking the question about, oh, you sell coaching. Well, what does that mean if somebody has a coach? How does that help them? What does that mean for them? And I'm getting their verbal answers and I'm also getting their body language. So I'm reading between the lines. What are they not saying? What are they struggling to articulate? Right? Yeah. What have they been saying over and over and over again? I, on my notes, I always have like big stars. Like every time they <laughs> say something, I'm like, yep, okay, we got that. Okay, that's a clue. That that's what's important. And then the last thing that I do is a Pinterest board. And this is a visual representation of what they want and what their perception is. And this is important because I want to align our language because what mm. you describe as modern may not be what I describe as modern. Yeah. For example, what you would describe as the devil's face, I would describe <laughs> as family holding hands. a happy little family. So we want to get information from them about what they want. And then that's basically like my clients' perceptions, right? What they think about their brand, what they understand, what they want. And then we study their target audience. So what perceptions might their target audience have? And this is where we have to start making some assumptions. And I think it's important that you work with somebody whose assumptions you can trust and whose assumptions you will like. Mm, okay. And I don't think that means that you Say have more. To, I don't think that means that you have to work with somebody who is exactly like you. But I In fact, think, that might be a, a weakness if you yeah, have the same blind spots. Right. But I do think that you should like the personality and the values and the approach of the person that you hire to help with your brand because their assumptions will be woven into the way you do your messaging and your design and all of the implementation. Okay. And I think that's something that we're kind of afraid to say or talk about that, oh, I'm making some assumptions because that sounds like I'm just guessing. But Right. We live in a world where we feel like you should have data for everything. Right. But the truth is that all of these things are based on psychology. And so I'm making assumptions based on my experience, both in the real world and as a branding expert. And then I'm using that to help my clients make assumptions. And there's sometimes where where I say, do you like that assumption? Like, do you want to believe that about them? Do you want to believe that your ideal client is struggling to make money? Okay, no, you want to assume that they have plenty of money. Okay, so if we assume they have plenty of money, what does that tell us about them? Right. And we can Mm. kind of go down that path. So this is a collaborative process. I'm not just saying, I'm assuming that your target audience are these people who have these beliefs and these identities. It's a discussion about 
what who we want them to be. And we're creating okay. that elevated ideal client. So mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of walk through how this looks like for an actual client because I totally get that this is, feels just very abstract and very like, oh, Rebecca just makes things up. Yeah. And that's that's really not how it is. Every decision that I make is rooted in psychology and strategy. And I try to bring my clients along through that process. And I have a very good rate of success with this where we are so aligned that by the time I actually show them their final brand, it is the obvious best choice for their business. It doesn't feel like, oh, that's that's really risky or that doesn't make sense. It feels very logical and natural. And also I, I've had clients say this so many times, that's exactly what I was seeing in my head that I couldn't describe. Wow. It happens all the time. So here's how it works. Okay. So I'm going to use the example of Melanie, real client. Um, we just finished her brand and she operates a tech business called Melden Tech. And what she does is systems and sales funnels for coaches and consultants. Okay. So we have some of her own perceptions. She wants to be a high end professional services business. And right. She wants clients who really want this hands-off kind of red carpet, white glove experience, okay? Yeah. So a couple things. Her clients, these are the assumptions they're making. Her clients are overwhelmed and they're not tech savvy. Mm. So then we can make some more assumptions about how things should look in order to create the perception that this is a hands-off experience. We'll handle everything. We'll do it for you, okay? So we're going for visually, we're doing something simple. We're doing a really easy to read font, high contrast colors, and then we want some round shapes in there, right? It feels safe. It feels friendly. And then we're saying, okay, what would they perceive as luxury? And this goes to some of those cultural connotations, right? What have other brands taught us about what luxury looks like? So we went with an all caps serif font that had these sharp little details So you have this round and this angled approach. And then we used a dark purple, which is often used with royalty or nobility with gold, which I told you is excellence. Universally beloved. Every culture, right? And then we wanted to create some patterns and categories. So we wanted to help people understand quickly what Melanie does. So these connected lines, okay, imagine a line that has little dots, like dot to dot, right? That suggests like a path or a journey or a process. And it's often used in technology for a workflow, which is what Melanie does. Okay. Uh Then her messaging was all about building and using a framework and having a foundation. So sometimes you have, okay, there's, there's these basics about what Melanie wants, what the clients want. And then it's also like, what's the narrative that we're using for the messaging that we right. weave in through. Like you add all of these layers and my job as the designer is to bring that all together in a way that is beautiful and cohesive and meaningful. And so, it sounds like there's a almost a metaphor level too, right? Yes. Like she is a tech person dealing with non-tech personnel. Right. She's She can't just use the language of like, oh, here's the languages, here's the, here's the right. products, here's what I'm building. She has right. to use a metaphor that they will understand. <laughs> Right. So we're taking the technology and we're applying it to her tagline is building the future through sales systems and strategy. 
So what we did with her logo is we combined the M and the T and wherever those points intersected, we bolded it. So we kind of made those little circle lines, right? Okay. And then the T, you guys can look it up. I'll I'll put it in the show notes, but the T and the M created a look that almost looked like scaffolding. So I manipulated the M mm. to look like the way that you would put up a house. Okay. So we're referencing that tagline, that that narrative that we're bringing in. Then everywhere that I had those connections, I actually turned the dots into a little bit of a sparkle because I wanted something that would suggest superiority, almost this unbelievable celestial quality to it. Magic. Yeah, something magic. I make it all happen. You step back and I do the rest. And then applying her brand, I'm using a real life marble oil pattern texture. And this is to communicate quality and durability and also luxury. And like she she wanted Mm -hmm. a brand that felt expensive. So through all of those things, right? None of those things are like, oh, I think that would look good. It does look good. But I'm asking the question, what is going to create the perception that we want? Right. What's going to explain or at least identify what Melden Tech does in a way that creates a certain perception and a certain feeling? And it's interesting. I've heard you say before, like, oh, sometimes the logo comes last. And mm-hmm. part of me is a little bit like, really? Like, you're right. a designer, you do the logo last. But when you explain it like this, you actually make all of the strategic decisions and you have to understand audience mm-hmm. and narrative and mm-hmm. messaging, in this case, symbolism and metaphor. And then at the end, you have to create it and it also has to look good. <laughs> right. It really is amazing how it comes together because sometimes you have conflicting ideas. So yeah. Melden Tech is for people who want technology to be taken care of and they want it to be simple right? Yes. But we're also going for luxury. And a lot of times luxury means superlative and extra. And so I have the challenge of balancing these two ideas that are visually different. One is simple and minimal, and one is a little busy and over the top. Right. And so it's just a matter of finding the right balance of those things. So in her what I call her logo lockup, which is where you have all of the elements of your logo. Mm -hmm. I simplified the font. So the M and the T are not stuck together. It says Melden Tech, but there's connections between the letters. Okay. So the L and the D are connected. It kind of reads almost all as one thing. And then the star is at the bottom as opposed to the monogram version of her logo, which is a little bit more detailed and has the stars built into those connection points. So you're taking all of these things and you're making these decisions. And ideally, when you do this, you present this to the client and you explain these assumptions that you've made based on what you understand. And it makes it really easy to say, yes, this is clearly the right direction for our business. Or hopefully earlier in the process, you can say, I think we need to change the way that we're thinking about our ideal client and what they really want. Right. And then I was just going to close with after you have this brand then you have to actually use that in your business. And this is where you use other visual cues beyond just your graphics. So Melanie is the face of her brand. And so we want to use her image and her picture because we know that faces get attention. Mm -hmm. We want to use icons that are consistent with the style of her brand and communicate kind of this 
superior quality luxury experience and also kind of that attention to detail that Melanie's taking care of. Right. And then weaving in more of this narrative about the framework and the building and using some of these lines to show how things are connected, to show how we set up the structure and to show how easy it is. So Mm -hmm. launch her website, you'll see how all of those things came together. And the average client isn't looking at these things saying, oh, I can tell that she's expensive because of the marble pattern. They just know that, yeah, I, I can just tell that she's probably not cheap. Yeah. I can tell that she's really good at what she does. I can tell that she's professional or experienced or all these things, right? And they'll say, it just feels like she understands me and I feel like it will be simple, but I feel like it's going to work really well. And that's because of all of the behind the scenes stuff that we've done to create the perception of this. So, right. And then she actually has to live up to those values, right? Right. None of your, none of your visuals, however beautiful they might be, right, will matter if she's actually really difficult to work with or if her process is not simple and streamlined. Right. Well, and in the example I gave of the brand with the smiley faces, if somebody doesn't live up to the promise of their identity, their identity almost becomes a detriment to them. (laughs) It almost, it almost becomes ironic in some Mm -hmm. ways. And so it it is, it's a big responsibility. And I think that's why my clients sometimes say, oh, this looks so legit. I'm a real business now. I'm like, yeah, you are. And yeah, there's some pressure there. But I think it also really helps them grow because the brand is bigger than them. It's right. not just them doing their thing on their own, building some back-end systems for a couple of coaches. It's a real business that provides real meaning and real value. It's not, it's perceived so it's real, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's basically, that. that's my summary. How branding works, how perception works, and how I work to use these things to create great brands. I think that's great. I think this is a good episode if you are looking for like a basic how-to in branding Mm -hmm. and really getting to the roots. But it also is pretty high-level stuff. So I think it's helpful to have it broken down into like, this is how I actually use all of this information. (laughs) Yes. Well, and there's so much of it that is intrinsically understood. Yeah. That is hard for people to identify. So like you may look at something and say, I don't know, it just looks cheap to me. Have you ever thought that? Like, it just looks cheap. Yes. And Ty a lot of times will say like, that looks girly to me. And I'm, yes, there is nothing girly about this. And he's like, I don't know, a woman designed it. And I'm like, how do you know? (laughs) I actually am really fascinated by this idea of what makes something look feminine or masculine. And there's no concrete rules, right? Everything is so swayed by what's going on in our culture. Anyway, that specifically is super, super fascinating to me. But it's, it's just interesting because it really works. Like I was on the Sam's Club app last night trying to buy some shampoo. And I told Cobb, I said, I'm looking for some shampoo that looks expensive, but isn't expensive. Like I was looking at the prices too, but I was, I'm judging the quality of the shampoo based on the packaging that it's in. Yeah. (laughs) And this Fructus Garnier, whatever, I do not perceive to be a a high quality shampoo. Though it has a foreign sounding name. I'm just like, I don't want to put green stuff in my hair. And that's probably because over time... I have seen that hair salons usually use black and white bottles of shampoo 
Yeah, I was going to say more minimal to me feels higher end right now, but that probably didn't used to be the trend. Right. Anyway, so it's very interesting how how that works and how brands can change perceptions if they're strong enough and if they probably have enough money behind it to to make it work. Right. Interesting. Do you have any other questions for me? I honestly don't have any other questions. I think this was great. <laughs> Good. I wanted to make a quick plug while we're here that I have a few more spots available for one-on-one brand and website design between now and the end of the year. And typically what happens is that like October hits and people really want to finish things before the end of the year and it often is not enough time. And so if you're thinking about working together, please send me a message and I would love to have a conversation with you to chat about what my process would look like for your brand and how we can use all of this psychology and design to create the business of your dreams. So let me know if you have any questions and we'll talk to you guys next time. I love that. Thanks everyone. We'll see you later. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Aesthetically Speaking. If you want to support the podcast, please leave us a nice review or connect with us on Instagram at Rebecca Peterson Studio. 